All right, let me just tell you straight up front, I'm going to come back and talk more about um, Jesus and the healing of the demon-possessed boy next week, okay? Because that part of the passage and the three that come after it are all disciple failures, okay? And so we'll come back and we'll just focus on those next week a little bit. So I'm not going to talk about it as much as you might think. Here's what I, I think is, is relevant to what's going on in this passage. Um, And I don't know how to not make this a cliche, okay? I don't, I don't know how to not make it a cliche. Um, but one of the things that comes up again and again and again and again in just human life is um, it is just about impossible to get people to actually listen to you. And it's just about impossible to really figure out who you ought to listen to. You th- you know, a lot of us just go through life We don't even give it a second thought We just listen to whoever we think we ought to listen to We just try to get people to listen to us And we don't spend much time thinking about the whole thing But the, but the reality is, is that who we listen to And how we try to get people to listen to us Is an enormous part of our lives I mean, I don't know how much parenting time I spend Trying to get my kids to actually listen to me like, when are they the most open? How can I get this across? Do I have to use physical violence in order to get their attention? I mean, is there, is, is there, how do I get them to actually hear what I'm telling them? Particularly if I'm trying to explain something conceptual to them, right? Because they don't think they need it. All they need to know is, under what circumstances am I going to get into a significant enough amount of trouble that it would actually make it economically not worthwhile for me to do this? That's mainly what my kids are listening for. And the idea that I could teach them something conceptual that would be really beneficial, that they could apply to all kinds of different circumstances, it would make their lives systematically and unilaterally better, just doesn't seem to occur to them. Right? I, how do you, I can't get them to listen. And I know that what I had to tell them would really help them. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. When they're 22, I'll get that call from college, you know? You know, or 19, and they're like, Dad, I think I just realized what you did for me all those years. So, yeah, yeah, can I have some money? (laughs) You know, that's what I did. I was like 19, it finally dawned on me in the middle of my sophomore year. Dang, my parents did a lot for me, and I was expensive. And so I call them, so they get like three minutes of gratification. I'm like, so, Mom and Dad, I kind of realized you sort of sort of did a lot over all these years for me, so thanks? Does that, does that cover it? I don't know. Um, or even like if you think about your job, your supervisor or your customers, like trying to get your supervisor to realize you have a legitimately good idea, right? Like this is a good idea. This will work. In the, and you know what supervisors think? They think they've heard it all before, Right? I remember when I had a direct supervisor, which was not that long ago. I mean, he's a, he was pretty open for a supervisor, but just any idea that I thought was just this fantastic new idea, he, he's like, yeah, yeah, we tried that in the 60s. You know? I'm just like, what? No, there's Android now. Come on. You know? And, um, or customers, like, you're try- you know that you have a good product, and you know that y- you can make a customer's life better, and it would be very economical, and they just don't—there's just too much noise, there's too much cloud for them to realize that what you're trying to tell them makes any sense or is right or whatever, right? It's just—it's really hard to get people to listen. 
Or honestly, one of the reasons I don't like parties is because I know that whoever I'm having that little shallow conversation with that I just met, they're just waiting for me to finish talking so they can have their turn. That's all that's happening. I mean, I had a friend in college. We were having this discussion. I don't even remember about what. A good friend of mine, we were actually living, we were roommates at the time, and I was in the middle of my sentence, and he just broke out and said, I'm so ready for you to be done talking. (laughs) Which, of course, is a derecho for years. Um, Hopefully he'll listen to the sermon. We'll just see. Um, But, I mean, that's just trying to get people to listen to you. I think it's an even bigger problem of who we're supposed to listen to. You know, I mean, as a citizen, trying to say, okay, trying to be a good citizen, who do I listen to, right? There's politicians, and there's, there's media personalities, there's academics, and there's, they don't all agree with each other, in case you haven't noticed. And there's all these voices, and there's this big cacophony of noise, and everybody's talking more and more and more, and faster and faster and faster, and people are commenting on the comments of the comments of the people who commented on the comments of somebody, something somebody commented on earlier today. And it's like 9.30 a.m., it's, it's, re- it's crazy. And there's stuff happening all over the place. And then everybody condescendingly treats everybody else who hasn't heard their bit of news like they're dumb and they're living under a rock somewhere. <laughs> and so some little thing happens over here that may have some regular— I mean, it might be somehow ideally relevant to everybody else. You're like, oh, you didn't hear about the little tremor that happened in Siam. Where have you been living under a rock? Right? You know, or, you know, you just happened to watch the week where Paul Krugman was on with Larry King, and he said something that you thought was cheeky, and of course he won a Nobel Prize. So what, you don't know about the philosophies of economics of Paul Krugman? What, have you been living under a rock? I mean, that's just—I cannot tell you how many 22-year-olds who are in their first year of graduate school have told me that the person they're studying under is the—say it with me—best in the world on whatever their master's degree is in. I can't tell me how, tell him how, how many Hebrew students at totally different schools were studying Hebrew narrative and they all think their professor is the best in the world. Every department says their people are the best in the world. Every department, in every school, every—I mean, I went to Oswego State University. I'll tell you how bad a school this was, okay? Okay, this is how bad my college education—my teachers actually knew they weren't the best in the world on their subjects. That's how bad they were. They're like, read this guy's book. He teaches it somewhere. It's better than mine. It's humility. It's great. So, but I mean, think about that. There's so many—how do you figure out who to listen to? In what area? In what way? How much? And should you have another balancing voice? And that just makes you confused. And what are we going to do? And it's one thing to go, well, you know those people back in the ancient world, they only had a few people to listen to. Okay, so in the ancient world, you had to worry about whether or not the knowledge you actually knew outweighed the negatives of the knowledge you didn't know. What's different? In the information age, there's such an information explosion that we're all just sucking on two or three summary pipelines because there's no way there's enough hours in the day for us to get at everything and put it all together. So we're still just sucking on a couple of information pipelines from people that we happen to like. Period. And it may be Jon Stewart, it might be MSNBC, it might be Fox News, it might be whoever, and so then we just hate everybody else because we think somehow our pipeline is fundamentally better than everybody else's because they picked up a couple premises in Philosophy 101 in their undergraduate under the best professor in the world. 
But when you, you just step back for a minute and you recognize how hard it is to get people to listen to your genuinely good ideas, and you recognize for a minute how hard it really is to figure out who on earth we're supposed to be listening to on any particular subject, you begin to realize that far beyond a little, t- little cliche of, well, you should listen, the whole question of who is worth listening to is one of the most fundamental human questions you can possibly get at. Period. You listen to the right person, you're going to get something fantastic. You listen to the wrong people, you're going to end up with something really not fantastic. It's, it's a huge difference. And the people who annoy me the most are the people who are totally oblivious to this. They really think the news channel they listen to is just a truth portal. Or that their political party really has all the best insights. There are people who really think that. They walk around as Democrats or Republicans or MSNBC or Fox News or CNN watchers, and they really legitimately, in their minds, they actually think they have a truth pipeline and what they hear is just right. You know? The, the reality is, is that the way we know things today is 80, and I'm used to being real conservative here, 85% or much more of what we know, we know because we believed somebody. Even the things we think we know that we think are scientific, we didn't actually go into the lab and prove them. Like antibiotics. I take, do you take antibiotics? I take antibiotics. They're supposed to be antibiotics, so they probably are against biotics. Which I assume are microorganisms of some kind. Right? So apparently they kill bad organisms of different varieties. Right? Now that's a scientific fact and I know it, right? I'm so scientific. Well, I, I know that because I read it somewhere. Somebody told me that and I believed them. Why wouldn't I believe them? Right? And so I believe them because I think they have a low probability of lying because they have a low there would be a low personal benefit to lying. So I just made a decision. It's worth believing them, right? And was I right to believe them? I think so. You know, ask a medical student, right? But there's this paradox in relationship to knowledge, which is that we all have to act like we're right about stuff. Because we have to do things right? We've got to get up, and today I'm going to do things. And everything I do is going to be based on something I think I know. Everything, right? Everything I do is going to be based on something I think I know, and so I have to know things. Yet at the same time, there's this fundamental problem of who should I be listening to? How do I know that I'm listening to the right people? Etc., right? And so we can say all we want fancy about this passage, but listen— Here's what the passage says. God, the Father himself, shows up and goes, Jesus, see this guy? Right here? The one that's glowing? (laughs) This is my son, okay? I love him. Listen to him. That's the point of the whole passage. Amen, let's pray. It's a, it's a whole passage. It's all, it's all the whole passage is about. Here's Jesus. 
He's the son of God. He's standing next to the two great redeemers of God's people as their superior, Moses and Elijah. He's better than them. He's greater than them. They're talking buddies. He's transfigured. He's glowing. The voice of God himself enters and says, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. Oh, that was supposed to be when I was talking about my kids not listening. That was about how the Blackberry Storm was the worst cell phone ever, but people told me it was a good cell phone. Okay, so here we are. There's so, yeah, somebody else should really do these. Um, so in Mark 1, okay, so here's the thing we, you, I want you to pick up about Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, God the Father speaks from heaven into human experience audibly so people can hear it two times. The first happens at Jesus' baptism at the very beginning of Mark in chapter 1, verses 10, 11. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he was just baptized by John the Baptist. He saw heaven being open, torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Okay? And the reason why that's there and it's, it's important is because the whole first eight chapters of Mark are all about who Jesus is. He's the son He's God's son, and God is well pleased with him. And now people are going to find that out for eight chapters. Now, in, in Mark chapter 9, they've just realized he's the Christ. Okay, so they've got that, that idea, but they have no idea what it means. And so chapter 9, Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's transfigured before them, and then God speaks a second time. And he says, then it, it says, Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. It's the same so far, right? Then listen to him. Now, one of the things that's important to recognize here is you'll run into a lot of people who are Christians and go to church and so on these days who will tell you that doctrine is not important. What's important is loving and following and having a relationship with Jesus. Now, that is about the dumbest false dichotomy I've ever heard in the history of the world. Okay? You, everything we think we know about another person is a concept that we've believed and is therefore a doctrine, okay? I can have—listen, I have a fairly good relationship with my wife, but if I don't get a hold of the doctrines that I'm not allowed to sleep with her friends, and I should treat her well, and I should go to work and provide for the family, if I don't get these doctrines, our relationship is going to end up strained, okay? It's possible. It's possible the relationship can end up strained, because the whole relationship is based on mutual understanding and things we think we know about each other, which are all—which can all be stated in concept, which are therefore doctrines, there are no doctrineless relationships. There never have been. There never will be. The whole idea is conceptually impossible. So one of the things we need to recognize is, is, is Christianity a large power about having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Absolutely. There are many parallels to human relationships, the parallel of how we interact with God. God is a person who loves us. We are people who can love him back. There's an interaction of personalities and life and action and things. That's a lot like a person, that's a lot like a relationship, isn't it? So when we say, look, Christianity, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a little bit of a cheeky cliche, but there's some truth to that. Real truth to that. But the idea that that somehow mitigates against thinking clearly understanding concepts, lining them up in our mind, and applying them broadly across our life is just ridiculous. But listen, friends, there are just 
scads of people who think that somehow those two are opposite of each other. The more things I conceptually understand about my wife, the richer our relationship can be. I mean, would you think that I was a good husband if I could say, well, I don't know a dang thing about the woman, but I sure love her. <laughs> right? That doesn't make sense. So, so we've got to listen to him. Here's a, here, here's, so we talk, we've talked about how Mark is Peter, sort of Peter's gospel. You can see how, how Peter and Mark's relationship helped produce this, and that's what the church fathers all taught. Here's another place where Peter talks about this in the book of 2 Peter. He says, For he received honor—this is Jesus now—he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Recognize that? That's from Mark 1, right? So what Peter's saying is, Jesus received glory when— God spoke and said, this is my son on whom I will please. And then look, look what he quotes right after that. We ourselves, so now Peter was there for this one. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He's talking about the transfiguration, right? This passage, he's saying, we were there, right? And there was a voice and it said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now look what he says right after this. Because he doesn't quote, listen to him. But look at what verse 19 says. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, right, through the man Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and you would do well to what? Pay attention to it, right? Different word, same concept. Listen! Okay? So quickly, let's talk about two reasons to listen. Or what are the two goals of Jesus in us listening? Um, and uh, I have used an entirely arbitrary way of organizing this. Um, the word used for transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, is kind of a, sort of a radical, it's the word we get metamorphosis from, right? Like a caterpillar turning into totally, like a butterfly. I mean, how does that happen, right? It's a totally different change. Uh, in other Greek sources, the word is used, in, outside the Bible, it's used for, um, in stories where like, um, a god will turn into a human being to trick some woman and to sleep with them so they can create a demigod, like that sort of thing. It's a total change and transformation. Now, in the New Testament, it's only used four places, twice in Matthew and Mark in relationship to Jesus' metamorphosis and the transfiguration, and twice in two passages in the writings of the Apostle Paul, one in Romans 12 and one in 2 Corinthians 3. So I'm going to just kind of organize this around that, but don't take any Bible study principles from this, okay? Bob, don't come right up here and grab me right now. I'm just—it sort of works, but it's not—I'm not modeling that, okay? So the first is um, that we need to listen to Jesus with the intention and for his purpose of having a very much transformed mind, a transfigured mind, a metamorphosized mind, a virtually unrecognizable to what it was before transformation. We're not talking about the rearrangement of a few mental concepts. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an absolute radical revision about how we understand the nature of everything, how those things interrelate, and how God relates to them, and how we relate to them. That's what we're talking about here. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Are you not with me? You're not with me. You're with me? Okay. Yeah. Now, the, one of the issues here is that one of the reasons our kids don't listen to us, one of the reasons we didn't listen to our parents, one of the reasons why we don't listen to each other is we think we already know it, right? Is that right? Is that wrong? We think we already know it. And so Jesus has just told the disciples he's going to suffer and die. 
And Peter was resistant, right? He got called Satan. Remember that whole bit from chapter 8? And, but they're still not really, they're still not really cranking it in there. So they come out here and Elijah shows up and they go, oh, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. The last two verses of the Old Testament, which is the whole Bible they've got, right, says Elijah is going to come and restore all things. He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to the children, children of their fathers. He's going to do all this restoring, and that's going to be right before the day of the Lord, when God wins and destroys all his enemies and sets up his kingdom. And so, if that was Elijah, and Elijah is here, and Elijah has come, that means that it's gravy train. Like, we're going—stock is going up, not down. Right? So you see, they're still, they're still essentially resisting this idea that Jesus is going to suffer and die and that they're going to need to take up their cross and follow him from chapter 8. Remember that? Am I going too fast? So Jesus turns back to them and he goes, listen, look, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Like, so he's saying, I'm not contradicting the scriptures. You just, to- you just totally are missing out understanding them. There's a problem here. He says, but then he says, why then? Or, or basically, here's the counterpoint. Yes, the scriptures do say that, but the scriptures also say this. Why then does it say, was it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer much and be rejected? You see, the, you see the issue here? They're saying, look, if Elijah's here, everything's gonna be cool. And he's like, no, 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 wait a second. The scriptures say that the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. Now listen, if Elijah's here and everything's great, when's that gonna happen? The Son of Man has to suffer and die before the great day of the Lord. Therefore, we're not there. I, the suffering and dying has to be done by some Son of Man. And if I'm the Son of Man, it's got to be done. So something is going to happen before what you think is about to happen. And there's going to be some suffering and dying. Listen, guys, you are not going to be able to sidestep this. You are going to have to listen. Because it's not going to go down the way you want it to go down. And you don't already know this. You don't already know this. And because you think you already know this, you're not listening. You hear a little bit and you go, oh, I already know that. And that's the way we listen to the Bible when we read it. That's the way we listen to our preachers when they preach it. That's the way we listen to so many things. That's the way our kids listen when we tell them not to do something. The minute we hear something we think we already know, we're out. I already know this. Here's the point. Jesus is saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't already know this. You don't already know this. You're going to have to listen different, deeper, offering more authority to the teacher, submitting under his teaching, and not assuming that, oh, I've already got this. There needs to be a huge transformation of the structures of how we think about things and the content we put with all kinds of concepts that we think are locked down. They need to get pulled up, redone, replanted, reworked, repruned. Or we're going to be like these guys, and we're going to be like, oh, that means this. And Jesus is going to be like, oh, seriously? The passage that I was talking about in Romans 12 is this one. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be, here's the same word as transfigured. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now that's what most people quote, but because of the passage about the demon-possessed boy, I think it's worth reading the next verse. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Now that's, 
That's really relevant because one of the things that's there, what's lacking if we hear something and we think we already know it, but we really don't? What was lacking? This is participatory. Humility, right? That's what's lacking. The human race is not born with an excessive amount of humility. We're born with an excessive amount of body fluids, but not humility. Humility is something that we have to fight for every single second of the day. Every minute, every conversation with our spouse, every conversation with our parents, every conversation with our friends, every conversation with our boss, everything we read, everything we listen to, everything we watch, everything, 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 everything. Either we're fighting for humility or we're becoming more self-justified every second. And what this passage is saying is you've got to be transformed, absolutely transformed to the renewing of your mind. What this is going to require is that we not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, which is our natural tendency. And here's how we ought to think about how great a person we are. The measure of faith God has given us. Now that is not the way I want to measure how great I am, frankly. And I think if most of us were honest here, that is not how most of us would want to measure how great we are. The measure of faith God has given us Man, we could get beat by anybody. You know, all the stuff I spent all my time working on doesn't count. Seriously? But that's, I mean, when it comes down to how useful the disciples were, what happens? Jesus shows up, they got no idea what to say to the teachers of the law, and they can't cast out the demon. They might think they know it all, but they can't do squat. And that theme keeps going for the next couple of chapters in Mark's gospel, Right? And it's very, it's very easy, it's very easy to take that passage in Romans 12 and to say, ooh, the next time I hear, hear about somebody getting saved, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll write that on a card for them. Because those, those Christians that just got saved, they need to hear that. They need to hear that their mind has to be transformed. They need to think like Jesus. Okay, well, uh, if, if you've followed Jesus for 30 years, you just come to me and I'll write it out on a card for you too. Okay? Because every stinking one of us does not have an adequate amount of humility, and every single one of us has not been sufficiently transformed. Because if you were sufficiently transformed, you would be radiating glory that we would have trouble looking at, frankly. What does that say about me? I'm in the same boat as you, okay? I'm in the same boat, but we've all got to do this together, okay? So let's go to the second thing. Are you sufficiently encouraged? Okay. The second is for a transformed being. Like, Jesus is not merely interested in transforming minds and conceptions and so on. He, th th that is a means to an end. The end is an entirely transformed person. A totally different kind of human being that exists right now in most of us. He's working, he's moving us towards that. There's a transformation that's happening over time. We get saved in a moment. The image of God in us gets reclaimed over the rest of our lifetime. Okay? And so we're, we're moving through this process— intentionally. If you're not intentionally cooperating with it, it may not be moving forward. Look at this passage. A man of the crowd answers, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit who's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. It foams, he foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And Jesus says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I mean, one of the things we need to see is, is that apparently just following Jesus around has not been sufficient for these disciples to be there. They cannot refute the mockers. 
They can't cast out the demon. They can't frame the situation. They're just, they're over their heads. I mean, I mean, think about it. If you were the boss and you left somebody in charge of the store and you come back, you walk back and there's a whole bunch of people there yelling at each other. That's not what you were hoping for, right? But that's what Jesus comes back to. He comes down the mountain. They've just had this wonderful experience. Peter wanted to stay there forever in tents. And they get back and there's this big mob of people yelling at each other. And you might think that they're yelling at each other like, you know, Germans or Norwegians. No, these are Jews, okay? I mean, they've got fingers in people's faces. They're yelling. There's payas flying everywhere. I mean, these people are exercised, you know? And they're, I mean, they're having a vigorous discussion. And, you know, Jesus walks up on this thing and he's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And, and the, the father goes, hey, I'm the one who brought the kid in the first place here. Let's tone it down. Jesus, I brought my kid to your disciples and they couldn't do squat, Right? And he doesn't just say, oh, the disciples. He goes, oh, the whole lot of you. What the? The whole lot of you. I mean, how, how, am I, am I, how long am I really expected to put up with this? I mean, come on, come on, guys. And in that is this whole assumption. It shouldn't be this way. The, 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 this whole, gen, this whole huma, humanity is so radically unperceptive because they won't listen to him. See the theme flowing through the whole passage? And here it's not directly about cons- concepts. It's about there isn't any faith. They don't get it. It's not, the pieces aren't coming together. And so they can't have the relationship. You can't get onto the relationship. You can't get onto the doing. You can't get onto the finding and the seeking and the, all the, t- take whatever romantic adjective you want to put instead, in instead of ideas or concepts. You can't do that until we get it, and we can't get it until we really listen. And not just really listen to say, okay, I repent, Jesus saved me. I mean, in every area of our life, how we treat everybody, how we think about everything, how we read everything, 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 everything. And because you've made hey listening in one area, has no relationship sometimes as to whether or not you've listened to this other area. You may have totally listened about how to treat your boss who treats you like garbage, but not about how to treat your middle child when they screw around at school. Because you've really listened here doesn't mean you've listened here. And it's really easy to go, I've listened there, that's I'm, I'm doing pretty good on that thing. And not realize that Jesus wants us to listen more broadly than that. And I see that, I see that all the time with me. I'll be doing, I'm doing great at this thing. And then this thing slaps me right in the face because it blows up. I should have known it wasn't doing well, but it took a blow up for me to realize it because I wasn't perceptive, because I thought I already knew it, because I wasn't, say it with me, listening. And listen, I want to make very clear here. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about Christian mysticism here. I'm not saying you should be walking around trying to find perceptions in your inner psychology and figuring out which of the six voices in your head is Jesus talking to at any one particular moment, Okay. I'm not saying it's bad to hear inner impressions and to believe that they're from God. I'm not against that. I'm for that. Um, Particularly as your Christian faith moves along and you become squarely centered on what Scripture says because the Holy Spirit likes to interact with that, okay? But what I'm saying is, I'm talking about listen. There's lots of other ways to listen. You can listen to preaching. You can listen to reading the Bible. You can listen to other Christians giving you good advice. There's lots of ways to listen. We're just good at not doing it. Because I, I think Jesus is after a certain sort of people. You'll notice that a couple of places in this passage, the teachers of the law come up. And one of the reasons I think it's important to understand this whole issue of the teachers of the law is because Jesus knew, and Mark, when he wrote his gospel, knew that the church would always have people cynically fighting it. 
the people of God would always have people going, oh, that's not right, oh, no, and either slandering us or confusing what Jesus said. And listen, I know the whole idea of debate isn't hip right now. We should all be having conversations. I mean, are you tired of the word conversation yet? Oh, I just want to, every time I hear I just want to puke. Let's have a conversation. Okay, so basically we're both going to write long essays and pretend like they don't totally contradict each other and not actually talk about those places. Drives me crazy. It's like sticking your head in the sand. I like the 16th century word disputation a lot better. No, we disagree. Let's talk about the points where we actually disagree and come up with actual reasons that might have relationships to facts and then test them against each other and go through the process until we've learned something. Right? Sorry, that might have been a tangent. But the idea is, is that we are going to have people who are going to look at us and either tell us we're idiots or treat us like we are because we believe, or they're going to intentionally engage in confusing the truth. And what Jesus is saying is, what this passage is saying is, if we don't sufficiently listen, we are either going to crumble under the weight of that shame inflicted because we're going to care what they think too much, and the strength we have and the faith we have in what we believe will be too weak to bear that weight. Because listen, I don't care who you think you are, you care what other people think about you, and the fact that most of the world disapproves of you matters to you. Matters to me. Matters to me. Particularly the people who are good at the things I'm good at. The fact that they disapprove of the fact that I'm a Christian matters. And, if, and I'm trying to make it matter less. And love God first. But there's—and there has to be some structural integrity to the concepts I believe that I've listened to from Jesus that can bear that weight, whatever it is. Whether it is the arguments that they make to confuse that truth, or whether it's just the weight of the emotional shame I feel from their disapproval. And if that structural integrity of our faith is not sufficient, it crumbles. Crumbles. Jesus is looking for people that can stand up to cynicism and confusion. And he's, he's forming a people who are actually useful to people in need. If we don't listen to Jesus, we will be the sort of self-gratifying, fragile people that are of no use to anybody. We'll be the sort of people that believe people can't change. Well, what happens when somebody shows up at the church that really needs change in their life? They need somebody to believe that they can stop drinking every day. They need somebody to believe that they can forgive somebody. They need somebody to believe that the power of the gospel is sufficient to transform a life and can help them and will actually waste some of our time to help them do it. We'll never, we'll never step into that because what we'll really believe is, well, what can I do? Where's the faith? that comes with a transformed, humble mind where we measure ourselves by the amount of faith God has given us through that process of transformation as we listen. Right? And people who will finally accept this teaching that just like Jesus was betrayed, scorned, hated, handed over to be killed, that we're willing to go through whatever level of that is necessary as we faithfully walk out the kingdom. Remember that this passage begins and ends with Jesus saying, this is how, this is how it goes down. I die first, then you. Then I'm raised from the dead and glorified, then you. That's how this works. One of the things that we as evangelicals don't grasp clearly enough is the radical nature of the language of the Bible 
to what God is actually going to do in us. We generally don't take it, the idea of glorification any further than that we will reflect God's glory. We'll get to see God's glory. We'll reflect God's glory. At some point, we'll be like Moses, who when the veil is taken away, he shined a reflection of God's glory. Read this passage. This passage says it is categorically greater than that. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. That's right now. That's believers. He's saying, we with unveiled faces, we reflect the Lord's glory because we believe in Jesus. The Spirit is in us and reflecting out. It says, we are being, okay, we is the pronoun here, okay? We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Ever-increasing glory there does not modify, does not modify his likeness. It modifies we. What that verse is saying, follow me on this. What that verse is saying is, as Christ's likeness in us grows, we become participants in God's glory. The Eastern Church called this deification. We don't like that word. That sounds a little weird to us. We don't like what St. Athanasius said, God became like man so that man could become like God. He didn't mean man becomes like God, like in every way. What he meant was that but through the transformation of the gospel, as the likeness of Jesus increases, we move beyond the role of mirrors to where we actually become, well, what Paul says in Romans. We become the firstborn among many brothers. We're, we are actually f- a form of Jesus bearing his glory in our own being and reflecting it back to him, not directly from him, but actually participating in what it says in, in 2 Peter 1.4. It means you have become partakers of the divine nature, that there is a nature to the, the sort of thing God is in his glory that we actually, through the gospel, become. That's crazy. But think about it. What does everybody do when they see an angel in the Bible? What does everybody do? They bow down terrified, right? Every single one of them. Nobody goes, oh, an angel! Hey, what's your name? Little angel. I mean, they all fall down terrified. And I'm not saying theologically we become gods, okay? We're not—I won't pick on them. Um, But what I'm saying is there's something about the very participation in God's nature and likeness where we end up bearing some of his glory. That's how radical this transformation is. What it will be in the end. And we're supposed to right now be listening sufficient so that we're in that process to become that kind of being. Ultimately, that's quite a trajectory. Now, you might be sitting there going, this is, this is the last minute, I promise. You might be sitting there going, well, how's that supposed to help me this week? When is Nick going to preach a sermon with some application? Right? 
I'm just preempting that email. Um, <laughs> the issue that the disciples had was they were still trying to frame the conversation. The problem is, is that if you don't know what you don't know, the whole idea that you can frame the conversation is insane. So there's a certain point where we have to stop going, oh, I have this problem, preach this problem, and we need to go, Jesus, you talk. You just talk. Recognizing what my six-year-old has a lot of trouble recognizing, that if I would just listen to daddy's concept and apply it to the workings of my mind, I would realize it wouldn't just help me not break my brother's toy, it would help me in a hundred areas of my life, and 50 problems that haven't even happened yet would get solved, along with the one I've got right now, and the application would be exponential. But the minute we get in our little problem, we say, Jesus, please get the pastor to speak to my little problem here, or help me be encouraged, we miss the fact that Jesus wants to give us a conceptual understanding of who God is and what the gospel is, that it will apply to everything, so that you will ne- you'll be like, I don't even, I can't imagine anything happen to me that I won't know exactly how the gospel applies to it. Does that make sense? All right, let's stop and pray. Father, um, I want to lift up the, the Father who said, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. To recognize that there's some people today here who have never believed in the sense of they've said, not what I was, I want to become something new, I want Jesus to be the center of it, I I believe. Save me, change me, fill me with the Spirit. Father, I pray that right now you'd be doing a work of conversion in people's hearts. If you're in that position, you're ready to do that, you just tell Jesus, You want him to save you, and you want to be his, and you want to listen. He's—he can hear really well. And for those of us who, like this father, can't come to you thinking that we are very believing, recognizing that if you looked at our lives and we said, hey, Jesus, if you could do anything, go ahead and do it, you would say something like, what do you mean, if? What do you mean if? Everything is possible for him who believes. And then we would respond something like, Jesus, I have no idea how to believe more. I don't know how to—I don't even know how to do it. I don't even know what that means, really. Help me overcome my unbelief. Will you teach me? If I listen, would you teach me? And Father, would you take everybody, all of us, further on in listening to you, submitting under you as our teacher, submitting under you as our authority, really taking it and drinking it and working through what you want to teach us in every area, every area of who we are.